Golazo. So this afternoon I'd like to spend, I think, no more than one half hour reading through the initial part of this explanation of mindfulness of breathing according to Asanga in one of the greatest classics of Indian Mahayana Indian Buddhism. So mindfulness of breathing, this is not certainly not intended that we now take an academic turn and all become scholars, but rather this text is entirely for the sake of practice. And so I'd like to share it with you in the hopes that it can enrich your practice and also just come in from this complementary perspective of the, uh, from the Mahayana perspective, um, which is really so wonderfully complementary to that presented by Buddhaghosa that we've covered thus far. And so this is from the Shravakabhumi, would have been written in about the fourth century. So it's, I think, quite remarkable that anything could be written that long ago and still be of interest and perhaps even real practical applicability today. And it's good to recall also that according to Buddhist tradition, when we're going that far back to the fourth century, this was a time in India where it was really, really quite common for, for within the Buddhist tradition for yogis to be, achieve, to be achieving first jhana, fourth jhana, into the absorptions and so forth. It was really a, a heyday, a really a very powerful time in which many, many people achieved profound realization. So it's coming from a very juicy phase of Buddhist history in India. And so I'll jump right into the text and hopefully you'll find it helpful. That's certainly my motivation. So he begins this presentation. This, within, this is within a broader context, of course. It's the stages of the path for shravakas uh, going all the way to liberation. And within that, he highlights five different types of personalities. I think it's five. Uh, Tsongkhapa reiterates this. In many Tibetan texts, they go right back to this source of people who are strong in hatred, people strong in this kind of temperament and that type of temperament. And among them are those who are very strong in rumination. Not strong in the sense that we're really good at it, but rather heavily encumbered by it, right? Predominant in rumination. And so that's the only portion of the whole text that I've translated. But just by the way, Tsongkhapa cites the Shravakabhumi time and time again in his classic presentations on shamatha and other topics. So it clearly he among, I mean, all the great pundits of India and Tibet uh, look, look upon him, excuse me, as really one of the greatest masters of all of Indian Buddhist history. So... Among the various temperaments, I've translated just this, what is it, about only 14 pages, not that long, uh, double-spaced, on his presentation on mindfulness of breathing. So he begins with a question, what is mindfulness of the respiration? And mindfulness of the object of inhalation and exhalation is called mindfulness of respiration. So you really are attending to the flow of the breath. In that regard, what are the two inhalations? They are inhalation and interim inhalation. So I gave you a little sneak preview of that this morning. What are the two exhalations? They are exhalation and interim exhalation. But now, inhalation is the vital energy that is drawn inward to the level of the navel during exhalation. Breathing in from here, the tip of the nose down to the navel. Interim exhalation, inhalation, interim inhalation occurs during the time when the inhalation has ceased. So as far as you're concerned, the breath has come in. And the exhalation has not yet begun. So there may be some times when you, you, you breathe in, and I've had this happen, where you breathe in, and without trying to hold the breath in any way, it just, almost like a balloon, it just stays up for a little while. Could be a matter of just a couple of seconds. But, but you'd have to push it out for that little pause to not take place, and you don't push it out. So it comes in, and it just holds for a little while. And then, 
and then it flows out. Okay, so that just that interval. Vital energy, similar to that, is drawn in for a short time during the period of relaxation, and that is called the interim in inhalation. So what he's saying here is when you when you feel that the coarse breath, the breath you experience, when you feel it's already been inhaled, then there's a time of just repose, of just kind of hovering there. But he says some vital energy, and I would surmise a subtler vital energy, is still flowing in. When you feel kind of the balloon is full, on a subtle level, it's still flowing in. Okay. That's called the interim inhalation. Exhalation and interim exhalation are to be understood in a similar fashion. Here is this distinction. The outwardly directed vital energy moves from the region of the navel up to the upper lip or the tip of the nose and then out for outward from there. Okay? So especially for, in us, for us now in the 21st century, how many centuries is that? Like 17 centuries later? Um, in this very, very busy, I mean, dramatically different from rural India in the 4th century, uh, my sense is that we're carrying around with this as an, ex- an excess of pent-up, pent-up energy. So you may very well find, this is not a recommendation, but simply an observation, that you may f- find not infrequently that when you breathe out, and you, as far as you can tell, you've just released everything, that for a matter of five seconds, and maybe considerably longer, you just don't need to breathe in. The breath isn't flowing in. You're just resting there. And you don't feel at all short of breath. If you do, then you should allow that. That means you're probably inhibiting the breath, and you should let it flow in, right? But if it flows out, and you're just resting there, just relaxed, at ease, and so forth, then that would be the interim exhalation. And that means that energy is still flowing off, like excess energy is still kind of seeping out and enabling you to come to more of a state of equilibrium. Okay. So what are the causes of inhalation and exhalation? There are two. So one is quite interesting, and I, could, I won't elaborate on it, but one of these is propulsive karma, so this is the karma that propels us in the lifetime, and that would bring us deeply into Buddhist worldview, but just there is that, that the propulsive karma that is that which propels you into one type of a, an incarnation or whatever you like, an embodiment as opposed to another. So that's one cause. The other one is the space in the region of the navel. The Tibetan term is boop, just means kind of like an openness or a space down here, and then, and then the more extensive space or spaces of the body. So specifically here along this channel and down to the navel, but then also just the space in the body. Bear in mind, I'm quite sure that what he's referring to is not oxygen, because after all, that just goes to the lungs, but this vital energy, which is much subtler and deeply related, as, as is well known, I think long before the Buddhists, in the Hindu tradition, they speak of pranayama, pranayama. So there's something subtler going on here that I think thus far is not measured by the technology of modern science, and that's prana. They haven't measured it yet. Uh, that it exists, that it, it, it exists, I think is obvious to many people in Qigong, Tai Chi, the martial arts, uh, Vajrayana, or let's say Hindu Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, and so forth. So it's that subtle level that is closely conjoined with the coarse breathing, the actual air that goes in and out. And he's referring to this subtler type of vital energy. What are the bases of inhalation and exhalation? They are two, the body and mind. How so? Inhalation and exhalation occur independence upon the body and mind, and that is in accord with circumstances. So there's a little bit of technical stuff here. I'll just read through it. You might find it interesting. If not, settle your mind in this natural state. So he poses a query, so a qualm. So like, 
Okay, but what about this? A question. Might they, that is the in and out breath, might they occur solely independent upon the body? And the Sangha's response is, in that case, that is, if that were the case, they would occur for one engaging in the state of equipoise devoid of discernment, so way up there in the formless realm, in the equipoise of cessation, nirodha samapati, so incredibly subtle samadhi, and in those who are born among the gods who are sentient beings devoid of discernment. That is, they have minds and they don't have, they don't have, they don't have bodies. Might they occur solely independent upon the body? No, 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 no. These people, they're still embodied. They're still embodied. Uh, but is it, but the, the coarse mind is, is completely shut down. So might they occur solely independent upon the body? Well, in these cases, the body is there, but the mind is not. And so might they occur solely independent upon the body? That's interesting, and I need to reflect upon this right now, because I just, retra- just was polishing it recently. Devoid of discernment. So what he's saying is, for these, for these such beings, they do have a body, but the breath doesn't occur. Okay? Breath doesn't occur. So these are states, states of equipoise where the breathing completely shuts down. Might they occur solely independent upon the mind? In that case, they would occur for one engaging in formless equipoise. So these earlier ones were not formless equipoise, but simply states of samadhi. If they occurred solely independent upon the mind, they would, ingur- they would occur for those engaging in formless equipoise or for those born in the formless realm. They have minds but not bodies, and, but they don't have breath. Then might they occur independence upon both the body and mind? Response, that is not always the case. If that were so, they would also occur in those engaged in the equipoise of the fourth jhana and in those born in the fourth jhana where there's no breathing, but there is body and mind, and in sentient beings in the oval, oblong, and round stages of embryonic development. So I actually did some research on this to make sure I got it right, and I think I actually have gotten it right. He's referring to week two to four after conception, very, very early, very, very early stages. So obviously during the first month, uh, there's no breathing, but he's saying there is a seminal mind, seminal not with the male aspect to it, just a core mind. There's body mind, but there's no breathing. So it's a technical point. I think we can move right on. What are the movements of inhalation and exhalation? They are two, the movement of the inhalation downward and of exhalation upwards. And what are the locations of inhalation and exhalation? They are two, coarse space and subtle spaces. The coarse space extends, so now this gets more practical. That is, what are you actually attending to? You're attending to the space in which the sensations of the breath are occurring. So the coarse space extends from the region of the navel up to the mouth and nose, or from the mouth and nose to the space to the, in the region of the navel. And what are subtle spaces? They are pores over the entire body. I found that interesting. They're pores. So I just recently read a scientific report. Remember Goldfinger? Remember the James Bond Goldfinger where they, the, the bad guy painted the woman with gold and he killed her that way because she, her body suffocated to death because she couldn't breathe through the pores? Well, I, only about a month or two I read a report saying, well, that's really good... She was beautiful, and she was colored in gold, so it's kind of cool. But it's not true that you actually do not breathe through the pores according to modern science. You don't breathe through the pores. Fair enough. I, I accept that. They, they should know what they're talking about. But, of course, they don't refer to uh, prana. And so what he's saying, suggesting here is 
that the prana, even during the respiration, there is some type of a pranic flow, obviously on a very subtle level, that's taking place through the pores. Now, whether gold paint would cover that or not, I'll leave that to a James Bond specialist. I don't know. Okay. So what is the fourfold enumeration? Again, this technical. Just read through it quickly. It will get practical quite soon. What is the fourfold enumeration of the names of the inhalation and exhalation? This consists of vital energies. They're called vital energies, the in and out breaths, inhalations and exhalations, and formations of the body. So the breathing itself is a formation, a samskara of the body. Vital energy is one word that is synonymous with other vital energies or pertains to them, and it is common with the other three enumerations. So that is, it covers all the other three, whereas the other, th- the other three are unique. Now we get practical. What are the faults of exertion what are the faults of exertion in inhalation and exhalation? That is, how much is too much? How much is too little? And the faults, in terms of the degree of effort you give, they are overly lax engagement and overly forceful engagement. So you've heard this before. But it's interesting to hear it 17 centuries ago. Due to overly lax engagement, The lazy mind is shrouded with dullness or drowsiness, or it is distracted outward. So I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but if you're, and it's, I I like the word engagement. Remember, some of you have asked me, how long shall I have the sessions? How long shall I have the sessions, right? And shall I extend them? If so, for how long? And my answer has always been the same, at least for a long time, and that is note your level of engagement. That's the best word I can find. Not how well is your practice going, because that's just going to vary. And your practice now, compared to stage six or seven, is terrible. So should you just quit? You know? uh, no, but it's where you are right now, within your capacity. It's very relative. It's relative to where you are now. What's the level of, uh, level of your engagement? Are you casual? Are you sloppy? Are you bored? Are you interested? So you bring that level of engagement where you're giving your full attention at the beginning. Hopefully that'll take place within the first minute or two. Okay, I'm in gear, I'm now, okay, this is as good as I can offer, I'm really attending. And then, when you see about extending the, or judging, evaluating, how long should the session be, here's my answer. And that is the level of engagement, not the quality of meditation, because that's going to vary, you can't control that, but you can control the level of engagement, right? That's eudaimonic, that's coming from your side, and not, oh, I was barraged with thoughts or images or emotions or memories, that happens. And so the answer is, let your level of engagement be fairly homogenous. That which is say, okay, this is, this is good, this is as well as I can do for the time being, good, 10 minutes later it should be right there. 10 minutes later it should be right there. If 10 minutes still later you're still interested, you're still engaged, you'd still like to practice more, then why not? Extend it a bit. But if you see the level of engagement is tapering off, you're getting a bit sloppy, casual, or exhausted, whatever, then before that happens, or right when it happens, but preferably a little bit before you start losing it, that's the time to terminate the session. So whether that's 20 minutes, whether it's one hour, two hours, that's for you to decide. But you always want to go for quality over quantity. Okay? So don't pride yourself, oh, I did a one-hour session. The last 40 minutes was, was, you know, I was really just sleepy and not interested and bored, but at least I put in the time. You know? You're not getting paid so you may as well get off the cushion, you know. It's all about the, the level of, you know, the level of engagement. So due to overly lax engagement, the lazy mind, the sloppy mind, the casual, 
the complacent mind, then is shrouded with dullness or drowsiness or is distracted outwards. Either way, it's going to fall to one of the attentional imbalances, attention deficit or hyperactivity. Now, excessively forceful engagement inflicts bodily harm or mentally harm. So now we, see, now we perk up our ears. The earlier one, you just feel drowsy or dull. Well, you do that every night anyway, so that can't be doing too much damage, except for creating a bad habit. But he said if you're pushing too hard, yodeling up to us in the 21st century, you know, then this can really harm you. How is the body harmed? Inhalation and exhalation are forcefully drawn in and released with difficulty. So again, there's just this constriction. You're almost like gasping, pulling in. And when it's time to just release, it may be a staccato release or constrained or inhibited release. In other words, this is really not healthy respiration. So inhalation and exhalation are forcefully drawn in and released with difficulty and imbalanced vital energies enter the body. Right at the start, they suffuse the major and minor limbs and they're called pervasive. So once again, we're talking about energy here that can really get, pervade the whole body. Moreover, when the pervasive vital energy becomes excessive, so you get, I think it's really, you just get too pumped up. Just too pumped up, just like an overinflated tire. And I've used, I've used that metaphor before. When you're just too wired, too pumped up, well, you know this is going to be, that's not going to be good. When the, vital, when the pervasive vital energy becomes excessive, this is said to create illness, and they produce physical imbalances in the major and minor limbs. That is bodily harm. So, that you should avoid. shouldn't happen. If, if you really need to err, err on the side of sloppiness. But it'd be better not to err. At least you won't harm yourself. You just develop bad habits. So how is the mind harmed with this excessive force? With too much force, the mind is overwhelmed by becoming distracted, depressed, or agitated. In those ways, harm is done to the mind. So it sounds like Lung. Many of you know Lung. So Lung disorder, pranic disorder. Stress, getting just tapped out, fatigued. Let's read a little bit more. Good, got a few, a few more minutes. We're going to go to counting. I'll go through it qu pretty quickly, but you'll see how he deals with counting. In terms of mindfulness of the respiration, one should know the, these five kinds of training. <coughs> and this covers the big picture. Thorough training by counting. Thorough training by engaging with the aggregates. So now this is where he's going to start delving into using mindfulness of breathing as your basis, not only for shamatha, but actually, as we'll see, as using mindfulness of breathing as your basis for vipassana. So hence, very appropriate for this week. So thorough engagement by engaging with the aggregates, the five skandhas, thorough and thorough training by engaging with dependent origination, now we're definitely in Vipassana territory. Thorough training by, by engaging with reality, and he's referring here to the Four Noble Truths, Vipassana territory. And then thorough, and finally, thorough training by way of 16 aspects. And this is where he unpacks mindfulness of breathing as a complete path. One practice, 16 aspects, culminates in becoming an arhat. Very cool. Same thing occurs in Theravada tradition. Buddha Gosi gives a whole commentary on it. So let's just look at this one section on, t on, on counting, and that should do it for this afternoon. So what is thorough training by, by counting? The training by counting entails four methods, counting individually, counting by pairs, counting forwards, and counting backwards. What is counting individually? When the inhalation has come in, 
So there, there it is, right at the, the very top. When the inhalation has come in, one counts one. With mindfulness, apply two inhalation and exhalation. So you know the rhythm. One. When the inhalation has ceased and the exhalation, when the inhalation has ceased and the exhalation has finished, one counts two. So at the very end of exhalation. Counting thus up to ten. So that the number of counts is not too little or too much. That is called counting individually. So there it is, just counting one to ten, one to ten, one to ten, but one count at the end of each cycle, at the top and the bottom. So there's one. And then, when you kind of get the hang of that, okay, then he says you can count by, count by pairs. What is counting by pairs? When the inhalation is finished coming in, and the exhalation is finished going out, then one counts one. So one count at the very end of exhalation. One counts up to ten with that method of counting. This is called counting by pairs, so one complete cycle called a pair, in and out. Combining the inhalation and exhalation is one. One counts one, so this is called counting by pairs. Okay? Then, I think you'll figure out the next one. Counting, what is counting forwards? By counting individually or by pairs, one counts forwards up to ten. In other words, one, two, etc. That is counting forwards. What is counting backwards? Uh, you've nailed this one. One counts in reverse order, starting from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, down to 1. That is called counting backwards. Okay? So he's given four methods there. Just to keep you engaged. I mean, it's called it speed bumps, call it little mnemonic devices to trigger your memory. But just so that you, the fundamental point is you just don't wander off so long. You know, the mind, even back then, this is for rumination people, the mind tends to wander off a lot, get caught in rumination. This is designed to bring you back, bring you back, in a, general, a gentle, methodical fashion. When one has done the practice of counting forwards and counting backwards by counting individually or by pairs, and one's mind does not wander in between counts, and one counts without the mind becoming distracted, then distinctive advanced counting should be explained. Okay, you've had the undergraduate level of counting. The next one is, I've never seen anywhere else. What is this distinctive counting? One counts two as one, either by counting individually or by pairs. Now, with counting by pairs, four, in, four inhalations and exhalations become one. So now you, you go silent, 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 and then after two complete cycles, then one. Okay? So I think this is kind of, it's a very a rudimentary level of working memory where you're breathing in and out, in and out, and you know now's the time to say one. And then in and out, in and out, two. Okay? Not that difficult. But you have to maintain that continuity of mindfulness, otherwise by the time two breaths have gone by, you'll forget where you, you, you will have forgotten where you are. But it gets better. In this way, one counts up to ten. Thus one counts higher and higher, increasing up to counting even a hundred breaths as one. <laughs> okay, I thought that might arouse a response. <laughs> then by counting a hundred as one, one counts forward up to ten. So now you're doing a thousand at a time. Thus one counts ten of that practice as counting as one and then goes up to ten. And with counting ten as one, if one's mind does not wander in between counts, one is thoroughly trained by way of counting. <laughs> Congratulations. You have now, you, you get your diploma that you are thoroughly trained. Okay? 
So when applying oneself to counting, if the mind wanders in between counts, then return to the beginning and start counting either forwards or backwards. In other words, you get a, a failing mark and you're back to kindergarten, you know, back to one. When the mind naturally does not stray away, but is continually engaged with the object of inhalation and exhalation, without interruption, such that, and this is a long sentence, I put it in bullet items, but this is now the criterion, when, when do you graduate? Okay? So your mind does not stray, but is continually engaged with the object of inhalation and exhalation, without interruption. And then moreover, when the inhalation begins, one apprehends that it is beginning. This is not just, this is actually quite helpful, I think. When the inhalation ends, one apprehends that it ends and that there is no, ex that, and that there is no exhalation. So you're really spot on. Bear in mind, this coming back to a theme I've emphasized earlier, it must entail an ongoing flow of knowing. Knowing. And now he's saying, okay, did you recognize that the, the inhalation just finished? Do you know that? Have you recognized the exhalation hasn't begun yet? Good. Then you're spot on. And then he goes on. When the exhalation begins, one apprehends that it begins. And when it stops, one apprehends that it has stopped and that there is no inhalation. So it's really quite micromanaging, micro-attending to these rather subtle intervals. And then finally, when one engages with the breath with delight, free of wavering, movement and distraction, with that, one advances beyond the stage of counting. Okay? Yeah. So then one should not count anymore, but direct the mind solely to the object of inhalation and exhalation. During the breaks between inhalation and exhalation, one should simply comprehend and know the beginning and end of each exhalation and inhalation of occurrence and cessation of inhalation and exhalation. I think, I think that's redundant. I can just zap that. That is called thorough training by counting. I'm just going to turn it just, 50, uh, just a half an hour. It's good. Moreover, the practice of counting is taught to those of dull faculties. For it stabilize their, stabilizes their minds, brings delight to their minds. That is, and I think quite a number of you have seen this now from your own experience. When you get into flow, when the mind really does develop some continuity and it's relaxed and it's smooth, call it delight, call it satisfaction, call it enjoyment, but you kind of feel, I like doing this. This is nice. Okay, that's what he's talking about. This, all of that counting is designed to bring you some joy, some satisfaction in the practice. So it stabilizes the minds, brings delight to the minds, and prevents them from becoming distracted. Otherwise, without counting, their minds would be enveloped with dullness and drowsiness, or their minds would be distracted outward, but by applying themselves to counting, that does not happen to them. But now, and now we have the final paragraph and we're finished. People with sharp faculties and clear minds take no pleasure in the practice of counting. Simply by receiving the instructions on counting, which you now have, congratulations, get a diploma, simply by receiving the instructions on counting, they very quickly comprehend it, and therefore take no delight in it. Like, I got it. By closely applying mindfulness to the object of inhalation and exhalation, they closely attend to the place, duration, manner, and time of occurrence of the in and out breaths, and that is how they train. In other words, they just immediately see, I, I see the whole point of the counting. Everything, I, I understand it all, and since I understand it, now I can do exactly that 
but without peppering it with all that counting, which is kind of like irritating. So thank you, and now I know exactly what I need to do, but that explanation was very helpful. Thank you. Noting when does the in-breath cease, has, and, and do you know that the exhalation hasn't begun yet? And then likewise, that was the cessation of exhalation, inhalation hasn't begun yet, that's the interim inhalation, that's the interim exhalation, and then I'm attending to the flow primarily here, primarily here in this kind of this channel, but especially I'm mean, coming down to the, the culmination right there at this, in this space, this region of the, of, the, of the navel, but also having this peripheral awareness that there is a subtle level of vital energies, the respiration just taking place with the pores themselves. Okay? So it's a very embodied practice, probably the most embodied practice of shamatha that there, that there is, and hence the, um, the very ther- therapeutic effect of it, or nature of it, in terms of the prana system. Okay? So I said I would speak for half an hour, and that's just what I did. Sometimes I'm actually true. Okay, let's go directly to the practice, and then we'll have time for discussion. Though you've heard this many times, I will say again. Let your entrance into the practice be one of release, of soothing, welcoming welcoming you into the practice by letting your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Take on this subtle challenge of settling your respiration and its natural rhythm, knowing that it's an ongoing challenge. It's not simply a matter of getting it right, but rather releasing more and more deeply, more and more subtly, 
all the way through the end of the out-breath, and more and more subtly, allowing without intervention the breath to flow in, just letting it be, whether it's shallow or deep, fast or slow, regular or irregular, just like in settling the mind in its natural state, that you allow thoughts, images, memories to arise without control, without, prevent, without preference. Likewise with the breath. Again, with an act of will. Allow yourself the freedom for the short session to release all concerns about the future and past, all cogitations about the present. Let your awareness come to rest in stillness, holding its own ground, resting in its own place. but illuminating the space of the body. Without distraction, without grasping, Be aware of this field of prana. How else to describe it but an energetic field, a space permeated by what we, we may call energy. And since it's energy within a living organism, we'll call it vital energy. recall the object of mindfulness. It is the respiration. The respiration is the flow of prana from the apertures of the nostrils down to the region of the navel. But I would suggest that you do not move your attention like a train moving back and forth on a track. For shamatha is very much about stillness. Rather, let your awareness be still 
so analogous to the practice of settling the mind, where your awareness is still while attending to, but not caught up by, the movements of the mind. Likewise, let your awareness be still and closely attend to the movements of the prana, the flow of energy, from the nostrils down to the navel, from navel up to the nostrils. No need to visualize anything. You can immediately, by way of tactful perception, and coupling mental perception with that, attend to it without visualizing anything. And in terms of the basic methods of counting, counting one, one count at the end of inhalation, the second at the end of exhalation, counting individually or by pairs in a forward order or reverse order. Experiment if you will. And if you choose not to, that's fine. But know the meaning as described previously.
Now and again, monitor the body, especially the face, especially the area around the eyes, the forehead. You see that your body is relaxed and that the posture of vigilance is maintained with stillness. See that your mind is especially still as you come to the end of exhalation, as you approach the interim exhalation, allowing the breath to flow effortlessly in. And likewise, when you come to the end of inhalation, and note even if it's only for a second or so, the interim inhalation, and then the beginning of exhalation. So with or without counting, may be or remain continually and closely engaged with each cycle of the respiration.
and as always monitor the flow of mindfulness with introspection, knowing that this does interrupt the flow of mindfulness, but insofar as it's still helpful so that you do not become distracted for long periods or fall into laxity for long periods, apply it with the frequency that is optimal. Not too interruptive, but not so slack that you fall into and stay in attentional imbalances. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Nasu. So just a couple of questions. We'll go back and forth again from, oh, three. Uh, we'll go back and forth between written and spoken. And, oh, I must mention this. Um, so on Thursday, we will be halfway through our retreat. Four weeks will have gone by. And so the, if this were a flight, we are down defi- definitely at cruising altitude. So the first, first week is kind of like getting up there. And then we end on Thursday night. And so the final Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll be in the talking mode, that is, in the dining hall. I'll encourage people to have conversation over meals. So we're definitely in the landing mode during that Monday through Thursday. But right now, really at cruising altitude. So as the pilot will tell you, uh, you're free to move around in the cabin, but we encourage you to remain when you're in the mind center with the seatbelt firmly fastened over your mouth. (laughs) At least that's what I'm saying. And that is, um, if you've not found out yet, just pay attention and you will find out that speaking really does tend to diffuse the mind. You know? And so, out of courtesy for everyone here, that is not the staff, they're talking, but for everybody in this room, within the confines of the Mind Center, just want to remind you, this really should be a place of silence. So if you'd like to walk, you have the rest of the planet. As soon as you're out the front gate, that's your business. Um, but within here, let's keep, really keep it silent. Uh, it will really help for the composure, the collectedness, the stabilization of the mind. So let's not get slack. Now is not a time for slackness. The last three days, okay, slack, but not now. And then also, now that we are really definitely well into the retreat, quite clearly as a result of or catalyzed by the meditation, a lot of emotional stuff can come up, psychological stuff can come up. And so uh, if you'd like to speak with a spiritual friend, there's a lot of experience. Well, we have two of them here who are specifically and agreed to be on call, and that's Jerry and Chitra. So as spiritual friends, no, so not as professional psychotherapists, but as spiritual friends. And I will say that Chitra was here in the spring retreat, and did you have to put your fingers in your ears, metaphorically? She did a marvelous job. She really did. Not a psychotherapist, but really as a spiritual friend. I was very deeply impressed and invited her to come back for this time. So really, I encourage you to see them. Uh, and then if you can possibly snag him, uh, Andrea is just a gold mine. He's really, he knows, he has a lot of experience, spent a couple of years in a retreat, really good scholar, very good heart. So if you can possibly hook him, uh, he's a very good spiritual friend. So... Those are your avenues. And then if something comes up and you'd like it to be, how do you say, not public, uh, but you'd like me to respond, there's a very easy way to do it, and that is write anything you like and just keep it anonymous. And it's very likely, frankly, that if it's relevant for you, it's bound to be relevant for somebody else here. Okay? So just keep it anonymous. And I don't read handwriting, and you know, so it will remain re- anonymous, but it could help a lot of people. So here's one not anonymous from Jochen. Sometimes in the guided meditations, you give the instruction to view, for example, the space of the body to the best approximation from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. Well, well quoted, was Jochen. There's one. Yeah, well quoted, exactly right. Say again. Achacha, okay, no wonder you're good. Okay. Does that refer to an imitation or simulation as if being on the level of the substrate consciousness, but by means of the coarse mind? not having lucid access to the substrate consciousness, yes. If so, can you explain what this imitation does or does not include, uh, which aspects of the course mind? Very good question. Spot on. Yeah. It's our best approximation. Um, and that is, for example, when we're developing bodhicitta. Okay? 
uh, in the early phases. We try doing our best to develop some equality. If you do the classic, classic kind of lumbrim procedure, developing that e- the equality of self and others, you're doing it. But your smile is just exactly right. To the best approximation. I still really don't like him, and I really like her a lot, you know, whatever, or vice versa. Um, we just do it to our best approximation. And then, but by keep on going back to it, then the best approximation gets better and better and better. Now, that was just an analogy for this practice. What's the nature from the, from the teachings, from this wealth of experience of thousands of years of Buddhist yogis uh, achieving shamatha, including to the present day, What's the quality of it? Well, you know. You, you now have scaled back or skinned down to the, the core, naked. Naked consciousness, which is by nature, in Tibetan, luminous and cognizant. So it's just core knowing. Now, not transcendent, it's not nirvanic, it's not Buddha nature and so forth, but it's knowing with no ornamentation, with no, there's a nice word in Sanskrit, it's prapancha, or trpa, trpa, which means elaboration. It doesn't have elaboration. It's not talking in English or German or French or any other language. But it's knowing. It's immediate. It's, I think we can really say it's intuitive because it's so unmediated. But there it is. It's clear. It's discerning. So bear in mind, it's a, it's a, it's a primary consciousness, but it does come with some core, the essential bodyguard of mental factors. So if you study Buddhist psychology, it's not bereft of or devoid of all mental factors. That can't happen. But it scaled them down to the bare the bare minimum, but that includes knowing, contact, ascertainment, attention, right, the ones that are always there. And so it is knowing, but it's not conceptual, um, and that's pretty much it. So as we're seeking to attend to the space of the mind, we don't get caught up in the drama, we don't think about it in a certain language. Um, Feelings may arise, feelings are there in the substrate consciousness, it's bliss, by the way, as as you recall. So we're not trying to suppress feelings, but it's just the most naked knowing that we can access without having gone to the depths of direct realization of emptiness, which is absolutely non-conceptual, and this is only relatively non-conceptual, let alone uh, the knowing just by way of rikpa itself, pristine awareness. Okay? So the short answer is just keep it real simple, unelaborated, non-discursive, non-verbal. So no commentary. Okay? Good. From the floor. Anything coming up? Yes, we'll start with Elizabeth. <coughs> I found that practice fascinating. Oh, I'm glad. The, the yeah. Doing the breath and getting the pause and yeah. breathing out. Yeah. And I found it required a lot more attention than mm. normal. Yeah. And the, I found that the more subtle the breath became, the harder it was to actually catch it. Isn't that wonderful? And then I realized I was... Ah, yeah, bunching up a little bit. For the the camera, you didn't see her, but she went, what? Danger of trying, of pushing too hard. Exactly right, exactly right. I noticed that. But on the whole... I want want to interject, and I want to continue, but right there. Um, Because it relates so closely to what Jochen was just just raised. And that is, this is such a simple knowing. It's not elaborate, it's not cogitated, nothing to figure out, right? It's so, yeah. so spot on, it's like throwing a dart into a dartboard. It's not complicated. Yes. Throw it, boom, and it hits, that's it, yeah. nothing more. And so if you have that mellowness, that's what, that mellowness, that's why we relax body, speech, and mind in the natural states, then you'll see 
that it's a very slender, that's my word, maybe it's silly, but I, I like it. It's a very slender type of effort applied. Mm. It's like, the, like your pinky, or like a straw, or like a thread. It's so slender that it, there's just no need. When you, when you put your, your, your shoulders up, I was thinking of, of American football. Hut, hut, hut. You know, 300 pounds of meat coming towards 300 pounds of meat. That's a lot of effort, right? But you go like that. You've got all those shoulder guards on you. and It's really a lot of muscle. Got to knock this guy to the ground. Whereas here, this is like, like threading a needle. It takes effort, yeah. But compared to sumo wrestling and threading a needle, there's a lot of difference in the effort. So it's so slender. It's so slender. So, yeah. That's yeah. my best word for it. Yeah. That it doesn't take any contraction. It just... In fact, to the contrary, it needs you to be really relaxed. And then just, just like, like threading a needle. If you do that with a lot of tension like that, it's not going to work. So now back to you. Yeah, and I noticed that when I was doing it, and then if you spoke, I couldn't do it yeah. while you were speaking because it was too subtle. Right. And then when you stopped speaking, I could pick it up again. Yeah. So it, it was, and also it made me want to ask the question, is awareness... And awareness and attention are not the same, are they? They're not the same, and, I, and very simply put, attention is directed awareness. Yeah, because what I noticed was when you said, don't let the awareness be like a train, Yeah. that in fact, I realized that awareness, to me, and this brings another question, mm-hmm. awareness seems not to move, it's only attention that moves. There's the feeling of awareness of moving, uh, for example, watch my eyes. Uh, you just went out of my field of vision. Yeah. I mean, no, you, you're actually not quite true. So I'm going to do that again, but now very, very introspectively. I'm, and what I'm doing is, for the people listening by podcast, I'm looking at Elizabeth, and then I'm looking about 15, 20 degrees over to my left and focusing spot on on Graham. But now Elizabeth's still there. I can see her. If she got up and walked out of the room, and you can see I'm giving you, I'm, both eyes are on you, on Graham right now. But if Elizabeth got, got up and walked out of the room right now, I would know. If she raised her hand, like, why don't you try it, Elizabeth? You did it right now, you know. And that would raise it. And now take it down whenever you like. Okay, really quickly. <laughs> but there it is. My, my attention's really given to you. But because I don't have a zoom lens where everything else goes black, I'm aware of some movement there, and since I knew who it was, and that's the kind of peripheral awareness that I talked about when I'm in the dining hall, right? Um, That, yes, I'm aware of that, but my attention is really focused on Graham. And if he even blinked his eyelid, blinked his eyes, I would know that, because I'm giving full attention there. So that's it. So there's an awareness of the body. There's an awareness Mm -hmm. of the body, but an attention to this particular flow here. But, again, I could watch people walking back and forth across a room. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing way back here, I mean, or normal eyes, but I'm holding my, uh, my hands out uh, so for p- people listening to the podcast, okay, I'm, put, I'm holding both of my hands out to the side, and now I can see both of them, and now I can't. So I, that's how much I can see. That's a lot of, that's a lot of breadth mm. of what I'm aware of in the visual field. It's more than 180 degrees, right? It's at least 180 degrees. Okay, but within, so if I'm holding that, and I'm not spacing out, not going into a trance. So like right now, I'm doing that. My, my attention is just where it is. I mean, it's just, just resting, not looking specifically to the right or left. This is an analogy, of course. 
Uh, but holding this, discerning, very present, very clear, if people walk back and forth within my field of vision, I'd be aware of it. But I don't need to go, hmm, 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 hmm. I can just maintain a field perspective and be aware of the movements back and forth. Right? In which case, then my awareness is aware of those movements, but it's not tracking them. It's my, my, my awareness went from you to Graham, and then you're way off to the periphery. But my, I had a sense of my awareness really moving, and it's dragged by attention. It's dragged by grasping, by interest. Here, it's more of a field awareness, and it's here it's a field awareness from the tip of the nose down to the region of the navel. A field of awareness where you have that sense of being still, but you're not pinpointing your attention just on the navel or just here, but maintaining a field awareness and then being aware of the movements of the energy within that field. Okay? So again, the analogy is so close with settling the mind as natural state. You're attending to the whole field, but thought come up here, thought goes there, image there, emotion there, and so forth. Go ahead. But the, I felt that to catch that moment of end and, and cessation and starting again, I had to pay fairly close attention there. Yes, you do, but it's a, it's a temporal attention. You don't necessarily have to focus on the belly for that or on the nostrils for that. No. But you do need to be spot on in the present moment, and that's what this is about. Oh. Yeah. yeah. But, and that it also brings me back to this question of vacillating, of not vacillating. Um, oscillating? Oscillating. Yeah. Which I've told you often I find it very difficult to do. Uh-huh. Then and don't I do it. I think it may be because I'm thinking I've got to, something's got to move. Yeah, nothing moves. That's, oh, it's just your... It's just a release. I mean, to say, when I say nothing moves, I don't mean that it's static, that it's frozen and unchanging. But here's my hands. Now, and, and here's what I'm calling movement. The hands moving left and right and so forth and so forth. And here's awareness resting its own ground. It's not moving out into space, but it's releasing into space. And then it's withdrawing back into itself. But it's not going, wee, oh, it's not that kind of motion. Because the only way I've been able to get any sense of it is to say, go out into space, open your eyes, come back in, shut them. No. (laughs) What I would suggest is, for the time being, don't oscillate. Just let your awareness rest in its own place. Okay? Jolly good. Very good questions. I think helpful to many people. Hola, so. Okay, you're going to give me a double header here. I'm going to give somebody else a chance. Here's a question, and it is from Catherine. Here. Looking at the space of the mind with eyes open, the visual forms are there, but I supposedly am attending to the space of the mind. It seems, therefore, that the mind is transparent. Is this what is meant by the clarity of the mind? No, but it's a good question. Uh, when we speak of the clarity of the mind, the term is selwa. There's another word, tangwa, which means transparent. But selwa here means luminous, but luminous not in the sense of bright. Luminous in the sense of it is the luminous quality of awareness that makes appearances manifest. So just like the, the, the light bulb in a projector, in a, movie, in a movie theater. It's the luminosity of that that makes all the images on the screen manifest. Okay? Were it not for the luminosity of the bulb, then 
there wouldn't be anything on the screen. Were it not for the luminosity of awareness, there wouldn't be any appearances of any kind in the universe. That's the Buddha's position. That it's because of consciousness. Consciousness alone makes for appearances. Now that's appearances of all of the physical senses. When a particle physicist is looking at whatever kind of data coming from, let's say, the Hadrian's Uber Collider, uh, it's a consciousness that makes the data appear to that person's mind, whether it's numerical, whether it's a graph, whatever it may be. But the appearances are illuminated by consciousness. Right? And so it's, consciousness illuminates not only the sensory fields, but it also illuminates the space of the mind, where it not for consciousness, there would be no experience of thoughts. They would be invisible. There would be no emotions. You wouldn't know them. And so it's consciousness that illuminates subjective impulses. You know what your emotions are, your desires are. Consciousness that illuminates thoughts and images and so forth, whatever arises in the space of the mind. Consciousness, so obviously, is the sole source of illumination of dreams. And I find that especially interesting one. And maybe I've given, that, given this analogy in this, in this retreat, maybe not. But if you're dreaming that, let's say, you're out in the desert, or for that matter, it's out here in, on, the, on the beach in Phuket, but there's a really bright sun shining, just so bright, you need major sunglasses, because in the dream, you say, oh, wow, it's so bright, where are my sunglasses? And you say, ah, oh, somebody gives you some, ah, oh, thank, thank you. Yeah, that's good. The sun was so intense. That could happen, why not, right? Or somebody in the dream could just shine, shine a flashlight right in your eyes, hey, take it, take it away, it's too bright. But let's stick with the sun. That's, so the sun may be so bright in your dream, that you need sunglasses, or you need to squint or even close your eyes. Where's the luminosity from the sun coming in? The brightness, where's that coming from? Well, not from any celestial body, because that's not located in physical space at all. There are no photons coming from it. All the luminosity that seems to be coming from the sun that makes you squint your dream eyes, all the luminosity is coming from your own consciousness. Right? The whole dream, everything in the dream, including your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions within the dream, all of that is being illuminated by one source, and that's consciousness. So that's the clarity. But now there's some... So, but you're quite right, um, and that is the eyes are open, so there are there's some, some impressions of color and shape arising to your visual awareness, and in all likelihood arising to your mental awareness. So there's going to be bound to be a bit of competition there. What you'd like to do is be focusing single-pointedly on the space of the mind, which means if you really did that, like, you know, like a civil engineer getting all the water to flow in just one of six channels, then that means all the other, six cha- other five channels dry up, which means even with your eyes open, you don't see anything. Okay? So we have approximations of this, approximations of this in just ordinary daily life. And that is, for example, on, a, um, on an airplane. Uh, if a person is reading, let's say, one of those page-turner thriller novels, totally engrossed in it, just fascinated. And the flight attendant comes up and down. You don't even, and it's right there. I mean, it's full-scale woman, man, whoever it is, and they're coming right there and in your field of vision. But you're just you know, totally, you don't see him. And if somebody bumps you one minute later and said, did a flight attendant pass, pass by? You'd say, I, have, I, have no, I don't have a clue. Were there not impressions coming in your visual field? Because after all, you weren't going with a microscope. You know, you're, you're, just like when I was gazing at Graham, the appearance of Elizabeth is there. So the appearance was there, but you just didn't pick it up at all. So it's called nangla mangepa. 
the appearance of the flight attendant did come to your visual awareness, but your mental perception did not ascertain it. So that's just an approximation. So that's not very deep samadhi, but it's deep enough because you're so fixated on the book. You just don't notice. You just don't notice. And that we do this all the time. You know? So in this practice then, you would like as much as possible to have nangla mangepa. It's appearing, but you're not ascertaining with the visual field. But we're not deeply, deeply in samadhi. You may not be so fascinated by your mind as you are by a book. You know? In which case, then you just let it be. And you, you simply deliberately give as much attention as you can to the space of the mind. Uh, and if you find that challenging, and, and I'm responding to a question or two that came up during private meetings, find it kind of challenging, maybe annoying or just uncomfortable, or you just don't like it that much, having to have this split frame, so to speak, then there are ways we can get around that, especially with these rooms. And that is the blinds are very thick. So if you just, even during the daytime, if you pull those blinds and turn all the lights off in your room, it's pretty dark in there. So, and then just keep your eyes open. And then there's very little competition. Okay? You can do that. Or you can have the eyes just a little bit open. Or you can, medi- or you can ex- experiment, just meditate during the morning hours. If you're a morning person, before, between, before the sun comes up, after the sun comes down, just you know, keep your eyes open. But with hardly any light there, then there's very little competition. Okay? Good. All righty. And then back to the floor. Okay, Miles, you're on. I have um, two questions about settling the mind. And the first one has three parts. And the second one has four. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, one by one, only one question at a time. Go ahead. Okay. Um, So the, the, the first one is, you speak about when you're talking about the attitude to bring towards the images, let's say, that are arising. The attitude that you want to bring towards, yeah. towards what's as arising. As if from the substrate consciousness. Yeah. And you use the examples um, of a scientist and a movie critic are mm-hmm. two examples you've used. Yes. Now, but, but, yeah, but, and I'm going to interrupt. I wouldn't push the movie critic very much because in both those cases... I mean, they're really, the movie critic has to write a whole essay yeah. or dialogue about it, which means there can be a lot of cogitation, and yes, this is Richard Gere, and this is his second best uh, you know, role, et cetera, et cetera. So not that. And likewise with the scientists. There's going to be a lot of cogitation. They're going to be preparing for writing a paper. So not in that way. Uh, so the analogy is good to some extent, and then it just stops being good. The movie critic, in the sense of, and it's not a very good analogy, but it's not getting caught in the drama, but maintaining that dispassionate outside view of just being aware of, discerningly, knowing if it's a Richard Gere movie, okay, what did he say? How did he appear? What was his facial expressions? How do you interact with this actor or actress and so forth? So you're taking it all in, but you're seeing the actor as an actor. You're seeing the images and images. You're, you're attending to all of this, but without doing what moviegoers do, do, and that is, oh, I hate Richard Gere. He's such a sleazy guy, you know, because that's the role he's playing. You know, the, the guy who wrote the fake, the fake biography of Howard, Howard Hughes, if you saw that movie. He played it splendidly. That the character he was playing was a real sleazeball. Richard Gere isn't. He's a very, he's a very good man. So you don't... That actually is a true statement. Uh, but being a very good actor, he can play what he wants. You know, he doesn't always play the same character, as some people I know. So, so, in that, in the, in so, so to a certain extent, good analogy, and then it just breaks down. Carry on? Yeah, no, that, you, you, you answered... Uh, my question, because I was sensing okay. the breakdown of those analogies. Um, and then the second one 
is in trying to maintain the awareness of space of my mind during daily activities, mm. uh, I find myself either slipping into sort of like a hazardous space of not having enough attention to the world uh-huh, yeah. or alternatively completely losing um, the, the focus on, right. on my mind. Do you have any, any tips for staying in that, in that Goldilocks area? Oh, right, right. Yeah. Papa bear, baby bear. Yeah, 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 just right. Yeah, well, th- this is one of those things that I'll have to say you have to work it out yourself uh, because what you've done, but you, you're already beginning. You're doing what needs to be done. <coughs> and that is you've identified the two extremes. And that is one so zoning into meditation that you're not able to properly function you know, in the world. You're like, like a zombie. And the other one, you just forgot the meditation altogether. Okay? Gyatso Rinpoche told me of, of one of his principal gurus, his only Dujum Rinpoche, uh, who we know very well, and he was actually his representative. He still is. He's represented the whole West Coast of the United States and, and Mexico. Um, that Dujum Rinpoche, accomplished Dzogchen master, that he said would just throughout the course of the day, he'd be maintaining a gentle vast breathing, okay, which I'm not explaining in this retreat. It can come up if people are interested. But he'd be maintaining that, but he's kind of on autopilot. I mean, if you've done it up, you know, a few thousand hours, you don't need to give any attention to it. Maintaining a gentle vast breathing. And then he said that even when he's walking around in a mall, sometimes a llama will go shopping, you know? Even in a mall, <laughs> they do. Um, that he would be maintaining a continual awareness of space while doing whatever he needed to do, talking with people, paying, um, you know, doing whatever, uh, looking at the articles, what does he want to buy, what does he want to buy, but maintaining in the midst of all that an awareness of space. So his re- awareness resting in space while choosing this type of toothbr- toothbrush and that or whatever he needed in the mall. You know? So I can't say much more. I don't think I need to. It's just that, so, okay, find that middle ground where if we now just jump over to Christ, give Caesar his due, that as much as you need to, then attend to the, the, to the world. In driving, for example, that means giving a lot, that you're a totally safe driver, right? Totally safe. And does driving need to take, play, take all of your attention, especially when it's light traffic? Probably not, which means you can give some to the space of your mind and yet still give everything necessary to be a safe driver for your own sake and everybody else's sake. So it depends on context. Heavy, heavy traffic, a lot of people changing trains, uh, pla- uh, what they call it? Mm, lanes, changing lanes and so forth. Then you have to give Caesar a lot, right? But then you can see, am I getting irritated? You can see, you know, am I just maintain a little bit? But in other cases, where you're just walking on this road, for example, down to the sports facility, man, that doesn't take much at all. Once in a, once in a while, check for snakes, but not much. <laughs> Not much at all. The only, only snakes I've seen on the road were dead ones. You know? So just a little bit. But that means, gosh, 10% there for the road and 90% for whatever you wish to do. So know that it's it different by different situations. Okay? Good. I think we have time for one more. Another, another one from Jochen. And that is on the Shamat practice following Asanga's instructions this morning. I didn't understand the part with the interim breath that at least uh, guess the word. Can you explain this part again? Is it clear now? Now it's clear. Very good. And vital energy. Is this synonymous with tactile sensations of the air flowing in and out of the body? I wouldn't say it's, it's synonymous. I would say that tactile sensations are sensations of the vital energy. The vital energy is there even when you're not sensing them. 
Like you can be deep asleep. That doesn't mean all the vital energies in your body vanish. Right? So the sensations you're picking up will be sensations corresponding to the flow of vital energies, but they're not equivalent. Okay? Good? And then third, since Asanga didn't mention the acquired and counterpart sign, does that mean that one keeps on taking the same object through to the achievement of shamatha? Well, I have to hold you in some suspense there. Okay? We'll see where he goes with this. But, it, but, but he does specifically refer uh, to the achievement of access concentration of the first jhana. That's what we're calling shamatha. And he refers to the first, second, third jhana. And so he does unpack this. And then when he goes into 16 aspects, he shows how the first four pertain to shamatha and the last 12 to vipassana. So this will get interesting. This will get interesting. If I gave you my, um, my intuition, which can be wrong, that's why I'm calling it my intuition, my hunch. Uh, my suspicion would be that consider, consider because I think you've had some teaching on Vajrayana, haven't you? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. At the end of a uh, end of a sadhana, it very often happens. At the end of a tantric meditative practice, uh, there will be a, dis- a dissolution, a dissolution. So. I mean, frankly, it's all of samsara, the form realm, desi- form realm, desire realm, but all of it converging in upon yourself. And then you continue to dissolve, and eventually you come to the seed syllable. The seed syllable dissolves, bottom to top, and it dissolves, dissolves, until it comes to just a little tikle, or the bindu, a little orb. So now the whole world has vanished. It's kind of like a black hole. The whole world has been sucked into, drawn into, dissolved into, this little tiny orb usually right in the center of the heart chakra. And then, gone, that dissolves. Right? And then something else happens. And so my sense is that this is analogous. He doesn't refer to counterpart sign. He doesn't refer to acquired sign. And if that were necessary to achieve shamatha by way of mindfulness of breathing, he would. He's living in India. There were a lot of yogis around at that time, and there were Theravada, there were... There were Mulasavastavadans, there were Mahayanas, Yogacharans, Vaipashikas, Satrantikas. There was a lot of Buddhism all over the place. So it's impossible they didn't, he didn't know, I think. Impossible they didn't know about it. Same continent, same country, a lot of Buddhism. And so, but he makes no, no reference. So my intuition is that like that seed syllable, dissolving into just a point and then, and then dissolving into emptiness, that here, this is not, medi- this is not Vajrayana. This is not meditation on emptiness, or rikpa. But it is a complete dissolution, a drawing in of the desire realm into ever-increasingly subtle sensations. Subtler and subtler and subtler. Until you leave the desire realm and slip in over and you cross the threshold into the form realm. That's my intuition. Okay? And I could be dead wrong. That's my intuition. Okay, we have one. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Not two. We have time for, I think, one more. Since you um, established the difference between open awareness and uh, awareness of awareness, yeah. I had this question also with the question of Kathy. With um, anyway, my question is: when we're doing awareness of awareness. Um, Okay, we're focused on awareness. And at that point, 
if thoughts come or images, we can just cut their heads or not pay attention. Mm -hmm. But what I'm wondering is, how about sensory perceptions? Uh -huh. um, I notice, I have the feeling I'm doing the meditation right, but I notice I still hear sounds. Yeah. I mean, I, I've not been able to have a sensory deprivation <laughs> tank. Yeah. That's, you know why? I can explain why. That's yeah. because you can't jump from whatever stage you're on right now to stage seven. <laughs> so this is it. It's stage seven or eight okay. that you very clearly have that sense that the other fields. And you'll, from session to session, in all likelihood, you'll experience it a bit differently because it's not homogenous. But in one session up there in that level, you'll feel how interesting, and especially retrospectively, my eyes were open and I wasn't seeing anything. Mm. How interesting. Uh, for the last 10, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, I wasn't hearing anything, but now that I've let my awareness flood out into the auditory field, oh, that sound was there going on along. It could be air conditioning, or it could be some other cows mooing, or it could be construction noise. So you know what didn't just start, just when you, you know, at that point, you know, this has been going on. That, that's interesting. I was totally unaware of it. So these are good signs if you don't... If yes. You and so it especially happens up there. Now, you could have a really good session long before then, but in the meantime, what to do? Uh, what you do is exactly like in... I'll give this analogy again. In an Italian restaurant where you have an absolutely fascinating conversation partner. And there's a lot of other noise, perhaps even somebody singing with the, you know, the accordion and the whole thing. And... But you have a really interesting conversation partner. So even though it's coming in, you don't deliberately give it any attention to them. And you say, this is good enough. And it is good enough if you can hear every, every word the other person is saying and maintain an ongoing, unbroken flow of conversation. Everything you're saying, you can hear. And what the other person, it's good enough. It would be nice if the place were quiet. But if you, you want quiet, you never go to an Italian restaurant. <laughs> Except when it's closed and you own it. You know, that's the only time, right? And so, of course, it would be nicer. But it's good enough. And this is the big thing about shamatha in general and awareness of awareness. I'll say this generically, and then we're right on the spot. We'll time to go to dinner. And that is, it's so important to know when you're doing it well enough. Well enough. Not whether you're doing it perfectly. Forget about it. You know, unless you're an Ashariputra or someone like that, it's not going to happen like that. But well enough is good enough. That's it. And so when you're there and you, you have, and it's, this is the thing, you're doing it correctly and you know you're doing it correctly. It's two things. It's not enough to do it correctly. Because then you can always start second guessing. Oh, maybe I should be doing more. Maybe, is this right? Maybe it's not right. This is too easy. This is too simple. Probably I should be, and then the whole thing falls apart. So there you are, right in the present moment. We can do it right now. Nobody needs to move. And it was just like taking off a coat. That is, taking off the coat of everything else you know and coming back to a knowing that was already there. You already knew you were aware. You're not oblivious about to, to the, you know, the question of were you aware for the last two minutes or not. You know you're aware. But now that's all you're deliberately knowing. That's all you're really taking an interest in. And that's good enough. And other appearances come, of course they come. Naturally, of course they come. But it's good enough. And then as we just release, release, release into that. So we can look at it in two ways. I've got five seconds. And that is, on the one hand, letting your awareness simply descend. Right. 
settling, nerubapa, descending down to the nel, the natural state, which is substrate consciousness. Or the other one is allowing the great fish. You're the, you're the little insect on the, on the surface of the pool. Allowing the great fish of shama to come up and you swallow you. <laughs> and the one very happy insect. Oh, I was devoured just by the one I wanted to devour. <laughs> okay? Very good. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.